Many of you have asked for it, and so I spent some of my paternity leave creating it, an introductory stoicism course. The best part? I've launched it using Gumroad's pay-what-you-want model. So if you want to pay $0, you can get the course for free. That's right, free. Learn more and enroll in the course by going to understandingstoicism.com. That's understandingstoicism.com. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Welcome back to Practical Stoicism, my dear Prakaptan. Today we have an interview with Mitch Leventhal, who is the president at the College of Stoic Philosophers. Now, there's something I want you to do at the end of this discussion if you find that this college might be a really good idea for you, and you will find out what it costs to enroll in this college during the conversation. It is very affordable. And I realize when I say a college is very affordable, it could still be $50,000 a year. And by comparison to most other colleges, that would be affordable. But I mean, it is truly affordable. If you work for a living, you probably have the tuition money to enroll in this college in a savings jar or somewhere where you might be able to spare it. So if at the end of this conversation with Mitch, you think that this college is for you, I want you to enroll. I really want to show the faculty at the College of Stoic Philosophers that taking the time to come on this show when they did not have to was absolutely worth it to them. So at the very least, go visit the website and, you know, give them so much traffic they're wondering what the hell happened. And if you want to enroll, please do. I'm currently enrolled in the Stoic Essential Studies program, and I am loving it. I get to work with Mitch, which feels like a real honor given that he is the president of the college. He's my mentor in the program. Everyone who enrolls gets a mentor. You'll learn about this in our upcoming discussion, but I really want you to go check this out. And if you want to take your Stoic practice more seriously, you know, outside of Reddit and this podcast and various blogs, if you really want guided education in Stoicism, this is the place to get it. It's the only place to get it. And with that, I will shut up and I will turn it over to my past self and Mitch Leventhal, president of the College of Stoic Philosophers. Mitch Leventhal of the College of Stoic Philosophers, thank you for being here. I appreciate you making time on your Sunday. Uh, thanks, Tanner. You are, well, let's start with 
what is your position at the College of Stoic Philosophers, other than being, full disclosure here, my mentor as I go through the Stoic Essential Studies program, what is your role at the college in general? So right now I'm serving as president. I'm also a mentor and a little bit jack of all trades. But because this is sort of a transitional period and there's more to that history, you know, my mission really is to uh, help the school get to a point where a good number of volunteers can easily move in and out of roles of responsibility so that it just keeps uh, rolling forward. So that the school is constantly changing who it is that's representing it, who it is that's mentoring, and I guess what it looks like. It's, it's demographic in a way. I mean, any school or institution is constantly changing. Uh, everything is constantly changing. You know, new faculty come in, new students come in, old faculty retire, things happen. Uh, the curriculum is revised. But uh, let me get to the origin of the school a little bit, because I think the context is uh, important. The original STOA existed, you know, in, founded by Zeno uh, in classical times in Athens. And uh, that school in a way, was a, a virtual school of its day, because unlike a lot of schools, which actually had a location that they sort of owned, you know, like the Lyceum or the Academy or the Garden of Epicurus, for, for example, uh, the Stoics chose to meet in the public square uh, near the, the painted portico in the middle of the Athens Agora, essentially. So they were sort of out in the open, with minimal infrastructure, coming together to learn about Stoicism and study and mentor and teach and so forth. And it, it uh, survived for several hundred years uh, as a school with you know, common leadership and organization and influence and so forth. So uh, fast forward, in 2008, um, Eric Weigert, uh, who was a Largely lifelong, uh, at least since his uh, early manhood, a practicing Stoic who had done a lot of personal work and study and writing on his own, began mentoring people and was inspired to start the College of Stoic Philosophers around 2008. And I think in the beginning, he didn't, um, I mean, I'm sure he didn't really know exactly what it would become, but that was a time when there was a renewed interest in Stoicism. And he designed the curriculum to as closely as possible replicate what we know or believe the traditional Stoic curriculum to be, which is to say, equal emphasis on logic, physics, and ethics. Plus, he added on a term of prosuche so that the it wasn't strictly theoretical, there was a heavy practice element and so forth in, in it. And then success in sort of running that, and it was almost like a correspondence school, people would do it via email, and he'd exchange curriculum via email, and people would write and submit their work. Um, and then gradually, he developed a more advanced curriculum, which is the Marcus Aurelius program, which is a year-long deep dive into the same topoi, at the end of which the graduate would receive a credential of sort. They'd be a fellow of the College of Stoic Philosophers, and in some cases, they would continue on to join the faculty, where the process really is very similar. They, they then are still interacting with the same content, the same curriculum, but they're doing it as a mentor in that role versus as somebody who's perhaps going through it the first time or as a refresher. 
And so <clears throat> that's what that's what Eric Weigert did, uh, a work of art, an incredible thing. And he designed it so that, again, we, it, it grew its own. The idea was that the faculty would come from the students uh, and it would be volunteer based. Well, a number of the faculty have gone on to do uh, or a number of the graduates, I should say, have gone on to do lots of interesting things in the Stoic universe. But along the way, I mean, there was a board of it's a not for profit. So there's a board and so forth. And uh, a few years ago, Eric decided it was time for him to retire. And we had been having long conversations about how to make the school sustainable long term into the future. And I always like to say, you know, we're just humans, uh, just like the original founders of the Stoa were just humans, and they managed to figure out how to create a school that would last centuries uh, and grow its own. Why can't we? So we've been having these conversations, and uh, Eric stepped down, and the board unanimously concluded that the best replacement would be one of the the very first graduate of the Marcus Aurelius program at the school, Chris Fisher, who had during the period of that, he had been on the faculty, but he had also developed his own body of work uh, in the area of Stoicism, a really robust and significant body of work, Stoicism on Fire. And um, again, as the first graduate of the school, it seemed fitting that the board would invite him to be our second scholar and to lead the intellectual life of the school. It's very, very flat and democratic, but to be sort of first among equals, uh, because we are committed to traditional Stoic philosophy that is rooted in what we know, the traditional complete philosophy as it was as it was taught in the day. Uh, so that's the, I guess that's the long answer to your short question. Well, I'm interested in the differences between traditional and what we all know as the modern Stoic movement, because I think there's, to some extent, there's some red team, blue team fighting that goes on between those two communities. But I think maybe most people, maybe most people who listen to this show, that they really don't understand the nuance difference between the two. And I, I don't think there's probably a better person to explain that nuance than you. So when, when we talk about traditional Stoicism and modern Stoicism, what really is at the core of that difference? What makes those two things two separate things? Well, first, I just want to address you, you sort of the red and blue metaphor. And I don't know whether you intended that to be sort of in the conventional political sense of red and blue. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> Good catch. No, not at all. Uh, because I don't see I don't see that. I don't want anyone to get a misperception there. Well, I don't really want to exactly define what modern stoicism is. We know what traditional stoicism is because when we we can we can derive that from the surviving ancient works, the surviving interpretive ancient works like Cicero and and others, uh, as well as the reconstructive work of people like Pierre Hadot, who have written, who wrote vast amounts on on Hellenistic philosophy as a way of life and the actual practice of uh, particularly Stoicism as a way of life. So we know that, and we know that that we know the the many different uh, ancient Stoic metaphors about what what Stoicism includes, and it was logic, physics, and ethics. So if you look at uh, what has been self-styled by some, though not all, as modern Stoicism, I mean, there's no trademark on the term, and I'm not even convinced there, there's complete unanimity, unanimity about what it is. But it tends to take Stoicism from a perspective that, that assumes that because 
uh, ancient Stoicism is ancient, it automatically can be assumed that it needs to be updated for the modern world, an assumption which in and of itself is questionable. And secondly, if you look at a lot of um, the modern people sort of who are in the modern Stoic category, and I could list a whole bunch, many of whom have done great work popularizing Stoicism and raising awareness that Stoicism is a capital S thing, that it's it's not just grinning and bearing it, that there's a philosophy underpinning it, whether you call yourself uh, traditional or modern is irrelevant. It's raising awareness and so forth. Uh, But when you read many of these authors, you rarely see any discussion of Stoic logic and especially Stoic physics, which is often uh, kind of, uh, if it's even addressed, is sort of brushed off as sort of a a metaphysical and theological morass that isn't necessarily relevant to the secular world we live in today. Um, So if it's even touched on, it's often barely. And in fact, there are many very interesting books on Stoicism, which really are are strictly books, interesting books on Stoic ethics, but ethics devoid of the other elements which traditional Stoics would say need to be part of the mix. So it would probably be fair then to say that the primary difference between quote-unquote modern Stoicism and quote-unquote traditional Stoicism is that one is more heavily, if not exclusively, focused on ethics, that being modern Stoicism, to the exclusion of the logic and the physics, which are included along with the ethics in traditional Stoicism. Is that a reasonable assessment? Yeah, but it's even a little more nuanced than that, because uh, I'm not sure the logic is necessarily intentionally neglected by the moderns. I just think that it's generally considered to be less interesting and less perhaps directly relevant, or people perhaps think they're they're less in need of, uh, of studying it to really understand the the ethics. But of course, the whole purpose of the logic, which again, many people find, you know, something they are not really keen to dig into, is that it's designed to help your, uh, provide the tools for your mind to better be able to discern truth from falsehood. So it's pretty central to, is part of the ethical guidance system. And it's why in in the college we we do you know require people to do units on logic and do some logic exercises, many of which people are doing for the first time or they haven't done it since high school where they kind of learned about syllogisms and then just forgot about them or something uh, you know and so this is a um, sort of a reintroduction of the tool set. So I would say that's a little more inadvertent, perhaps, because people don't approach that with sort of the same urgency as they do the ethics. The physics, I think, is a deeper, uh, is a, a more complicated thing, and it's led to a lot, a number of sort of polemical interactions on both sides of, of this one. Um, I mean, it takes two to polemic, doesn't it, really? <laughs> it takes two to polemic. I like that, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, traditional Stoics, I, I wouldn't say they're dogmatic, but sometimes they may be accused of being dogmatic because they're purists. They do believe that the philosophy is not complete without a deep understanding of the three topoi and the fact that they interact. It doesn't sustain its Itself without any one of them. That the Stoic cosmology, in particular, their understanding of the relationship of man to the universe or 
consciousness to the universe, relationship with nature, you, you know, the interrelationships of these things. I don't want to get into all the esoterics uh, here, but, you know, their, their conception of the one uh, and how that influences ethical behavior, I mean, is, is pretty central. And I think that a lot of people on the modern side, you know, oftentimes they look at Stoicism and it looks almost like uh, an atheist, you know, theological framework or not theological because they're rejecting God, perhaps. But it looks like a, a guidance system, uh, you know, a personal guidance system that doesn't require God from above to tell us what to do. And that's something that draws people to Stoicism. But many of them have had very bad relationships with religion for one reason or another, many. And as a result, they may consider themselves hard atheists, uh, not all of them, but many, or at least pretty hard agnostics. They want to see the evidence. Well, the only evidence we can agree on is nature as we see it and as we discover it. But that actually is core to the Stoic cosmology, and it's observable to some extent. And, you know, just because the Stoics got it wrong 2,000 years ago about atoms or and so forth doesn't mean that they would reject modern scientific discovery. So, you know, I think some people, you know, the, the thing is, traditional Stoics have generally gotten over their sensitivities regarding the lexicon. The lexicon I'm referring to is the God lexicon. It's the lexicon that includes words like providence, nature, logos, universal reason, Zeus, Jehovah, right? All of these conceptions are wrapped up, right, in the Stoic logos or what they'll call nature, the universe, the totality, the one, all of that. Um, and it's non-interventional. It's not a, an Abrahamic type deity that's going to come down and intervene uh, in any sense of the word. It's in a way more like first mover in part. And, and consciousness is interwoven with it because consciousness, from the perspective of Stoic physics, consciousness doesn't arise from nothing. I mean, that defies what we know of physics. They, you know, matter and energy, there's a flux. They go from one to another, but but there's a conservation process going on. Things don't just appear out of, out of nothing, right? So when consciousness instantiates in the living organism, and when the living organism itself dies, consciousness clearly goes somewhere. It dissipates somewhere. Well, that somewhere seems to be everywhere, and uh, that doesn't mean that it that it ceases to exist. It transforms in some manner. It, it goes somewhere, and it seems to go into the universe, like universal consciousness, universal reason. Where does reason come from? It comes from consciousness. So, anyway, this is sort of a stoic loop. I'm not a. I am not uh, by any means a um, a sage. I am a Procopton. I am uh, learning every day. I am studying less frequently than I would like simply because I'm living too busy a life. I'm not as practiced as many who I admire and try to emulate. So these are, you know, the musings in part of an amateur, uh, which is what most of us are. Well, an amateur who is still president of the College of Stoic Philosophers. So we'll give you a little bit more credit than an amateur. I think that's fair to do. Well, you know. Fate plays sort of funny games sometimes, and uh, this is this opportunity to lead the college at this moment is a gift. 
but it's not an ambition. It's more like, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge and a worthy one. We're talking to Mitch Leventhal of the College of Stoic Philosophers. He's the president. And when we come back, we're going to learn a little bit about his story and how he wound up at the front door, as it were, of Stoicism. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you in part by Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with over 3 million members. They are, without a doubt, the easiest way to play DFS. It's just you versus the numbers. You pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. With the big game right around the corner, Prize Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to turn every game changing moment into 100 times your money because with as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Offer expires post Super Bowl. With quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of player and stat types, it's no wonder Prize Picks is the number one daily fantasy sports app. I've got friends that use Prize Picks, and they absolutely swear by it. So if daily fantasy sports is your thing, you've got to give Prize Picks a try. Go to prizepicks.com forward slash practical and use the code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com forward slash practical with code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify today and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're speaking with Mitch Leventhal, president of the College of Stoic Philosophers, and let's hear a little bit about your story. We usually start with the background of the guest, but we jumped right into some details. So let's start with now. 
your story. How did you wind up at Stoicism's front door? Because you and I have some things in common. We're business-centric, entrepreneurial-type people, and Stoicism wasn't our first stop by a long shot. It's true. I, I mean, I, I've had a, a long career working in the private sector in different industries and so forth, a lot of experience with startup companies. But I've also had this other side of me where I worked uh, as a university administrator, also in a kind of an entrepreneurial capacity. And some years back, I moved on to the faculty uh, at a un- public university in, in New York State. And I was, uh, it's a graduate program, largely training people who will be school administrators, school district leaders, things like that, university presidents or officers and so forth. And uh, I was tasked with with teaching a uh, a core course, which all of the master's students and about 50% of the doctoral students uh, are required to take, which is in organizational leadership. And at the time, although I had been an organizational leader, I had never really thought about, I had never taken a course in organizational leadership. I had never really thought deeply about uh, leadership from any kind of theoretical perspective. Organizations, I perhaps had a more, more of a, a, a sound understanding of because I had studied political science at one time and, and so forth, but really not the context I was being asked to teach. And when I looked at the textbook, which is a very, a very popular textbook that's used in many, many uh, undergraduate and graduate programs in the U.S. It discusses literally dozens of different types of leadership. You know, it sort of starts with trait leadership and skill-based leadership and transformational leadership and servant leadership and adaptive leadership and situational leadership. And it just goes on and on and on. And every one of these theories is sort of a different lens to look at leadership. It has another unique diagram associated with it, a different chart. And none of them, uh, in the end, uh, have been empirically proven because it's very difficult to do empirical tests of leadership. And as I read the book, I, I started to feel like it's sort of like mental masturbation. It's it's every new leadership theory is sort of copyrighted by whoever has popularized it, and they've got a, a bestseller related to that leadership theory, and they're monetizing that leadership theory. But there's got to be something that's that's common to all effective leadership. So that's what got me on, on onto this, this stoic uh, journey. I started to wonder, you know, what is the, you know, what is the most common denominator that, that, that is essential, the, the most essential character, characteristics that one has to have or cultivate in order to become an effective leader. Um, and so the next step in my journey was I thought, let, let's look at a few books written in the first person memoirs, perhaps by people who are renowned as excellent leaders, you know, and, you know, you can make a short list of people like this. I mean, there are writings by Lincoln and there's, there's a Gandhi and there's Marcus Aurelius. Oh, Marcus Aurelius. So I started with Marcus and I picked up Marcus. Of course, I'd been familiar with the meditations for decades, but frankly, I, I, I believe I read it as a teenager among many books I, I just plowed through quickly on it, you know, one afternoon or another without really fully digesting it. I probably wasn't anywhere near mature enough to understand its significance and import. I probably spent more time reading Machiavelli or something like that at the time. But in any case, um, I picked it up and read it and I thought, uh, you know, Oh my, this is, 
This is excellent raw material for people studying leadership. So I incorporated it into my course. And each week they had to read this modern theoretical leadership stuff. And then they'd also have to read one of the books of Marcus Aurelius and then comment on how Marcus was relevant to perhaps what they were studying in leadership or life in general. And the students, all of whom were adult learners, I mean, the youngest would be around 24 years of age, and some of them were in their 40s, just gobbled it up. They loved it. And of course, we began talking in these classes uh, more about Marcus Aurelius, and I began reading a lot myself and enriching my own sort of knowledge. But I felt like it sort of was unjust to my students in that I was really barely acquainted with Stoicism at that point from a from a real, uh, you know, truly. I was self-directed, doing self-directed reading. Uh, I knew I was avoiding certain things, which I just needed some help getting through, but I didn't know where to, who to ask. My, you know, my students were taking it very seriously. Where could I go? And uh, around that time, which would have been around... Um, five years ago, maybe. This whole thing began around seven years ago. So I was two years in when finally I got up the urge to enroll in the College of Stoic Philosophers because for a long time, I wasn't sure whether College of Stoic Philosophers was like legit or not, to tell you the truth. It just seemed, you know, college, what, what is it, who, what, you know. Um, but I did. It was, didn't, I figured how much is there to lose? They charge almost nothing. And so I enrolled and uh, I loved it. And like most of the faculty, it's become a significant part of our lives. I mean, faculty are all volunteers. I'm volunteer as a president. I have a day job. We're all volunteers. We do it uh, out of our love for the philosophy, the community of practice, which the college kind of enshrines. I mean, our other fac the other faculty members have all gone through the same program. We're all part of the same school. The faculty themselves are now, you know, revising curriculum on an ongoing basis and developing new courses even, um, which we'll soon be announcing. So it's a, you know, it's a, a place, even though it's a virtuality, which in the beginning of our conversation, I was making the point that the original STOA was virtual and it also had these topoi. And so I want to get to both of those points, if, if, if you don't mind. No, yeah, I don't mind. Before you do, though, I want to make a comment about the cost of the college and the fact that there are new programs coming. And we'll talk a little bit about this in the third segment of this discussion. But when you say that the college charges almost nothing, I mean, in comparison to any other college <laughs> or really any other just coaching program or textbook, to be honest, the cost of this college is it is so low. And I imagine that the reason for that is you really do. And everyone involved really does want this to be as financially accessible as is humanly possible. You don't want the reason that someone doesn't participate in this to be the meager amount of money that you ask for to keep the whole thing running. Do you want to talk a little bit about the tuition rates? Because I think it's worth knowing that as someone listening to this podcast who's thinking, oh, I might like to do this. And he says it's affordable, but what does that exactly mean? Well, the the uh, Stoic Essential Studies course, which is a four-month course, 16 weeks, half divided between theory and the other half practice, is $100. 
and the, the student is assigned a, a Moodle account, that's our learning management system, and they're in direct contact with their mentor, who they have one-on-one Zoom conferences with three times during that four months, and then they have interactions through Moodle as they reach certain breakpoints between modules and so forth. The Marcus Aurelius program, which is four quarters duration, one year long, they're four 11-week quarters. That is $120 per quarter. And in the Marcus Aurelius program, typically the student is meeting with their mentor every two or three weeks or so via Zoom. And you have another course that's intended for those who are not just new to Stoicism, but but also in particular young. And we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are, you know, 14, 15, 16. It's a fair fair size segment of our audience. And this is is only $90 if memory serves. Is that right? Right. So we have a a prep program, which is uh, specifically designed for uh, teenagers up to the age of 18. It's a high-level introduction to Stoicism for uh, teenagers or young adults. And uh, it also is guided with a mentor. Uh, In order to enroll, the student has to have their parents' authorization. So there's a, you know, there's a parental approval form. But yeah, we've had that for several years now. We haven't had a great number of students go through it. We haven't, uh, well, we don't promote the school that much anyway, but uh, in particular, we haven't really um, uh, promoted that. Uh, if people find us or they're prepared to start something like that, they generally they generally show up at the door, so to speak, or they're referred by somebody who's already been through the program. I- I'm wondering, is that intentional? Is that by design? I mean, you all could easily run Facebook ads or appear on more podcasts as you are doing now. You could you could probably put marketing dollars behind it. Is choosing not to do it related in some way to the idea of how you want people to come to it? Would you prefer it be word of mouth? Is it more intimate, better that way as a way of, let's say, sussing out from an otherwise enormous crowd, right? Eight billion people on the planet or something. The people who are actually interested in going deeper? Well, you know, I keep saying it's a community of practice. For this to work, we have to have a sufficient number of mentors for students. And each person who graduates from the program who becomes a mentor, becomes a member of our faculty, everyone has a different capacity for for work. Some may only want to take two uh, SES students, that's the introductory students, at a time, no more than two. Uh, Another might say, I can take four Marcus Aurelius physics students, which is known to be sort of a demanding course, uh, along with you know, up to six SES students. I mean, we have some volunteers who uh, have time on their hands. They enjoy doing it. This is something they're committed to spending a substantial amount of their time on, and they do it. So we don't dictate to our faculty how much they can do. What we try to do is accommodate them such that they have the best possible experience as mentors and their students have the best possible experience with their mentors, right? So this is a delicate balance. So how how fast do we want to grow? Um, it's it's a pipeline to our faculty. And of course, as students, as months go on, the number of students always dwindles and the ones who make it through at the end, uh, uh, you know, are, there's a certain number. And of those, not everyone should be on our faculty. Some don't want to. They're done. They completed it. That was their personal goal. They have other things to do. Others 
we may not necessarily think are suitable for our faculty because, they, you know, they got through the program. That was great. You know, they're nice, but maybe they're not really going quite deep enough, you know, to be on our, our faculty or not as committed to some aspect of the program. But that's fine. They can go their way and then others will be invited on. And uh, then they go through a practicum, which is a period of time where they're not really full faculty members, uh, but they are assigned some introductory students to mentor under guidance. So they go through a teacher training program. When they're complete, when that's been completed successfully, then they move on to the faculty. Uh, but again, the question of scaling is all, it's, it's an ongoing discussion. Under my leadership, which came on sort of suddenly, I, I, and that's a, another story, but you know, the last uh, two years or so, I have been more focused on making sure that the school has an infrastructure in place, a, a virtual infrastructure that can allow multiple faculty members to assume critical roles in the governance and administration of the school. Because the reality of the matter is when a student application comes in, you know, a payment has happened and the student is wondering what next. And somebody has to go in and look at the application, evaluate it. And we do ask students to write a Know Thyself essay. And we and t- we expect it's going to be at least a thousand words long. So they have to put some thought into writing a serious essay uh, about why this now. And so that comes in. A registrar has to read it, make an assessment, what to do with this candidate. Uh, more often than not, people are accepted. And then they have to be assigned to a, a mentor. So that's the question of availability, which mentor. Sometimes there are factors like where in the world are they because their students are everywhere. And then they have to be, of course, uh, set up with their account in Moodle. So there's actually there's actually stuff underpinning it. And the, the critical thing, you know, because my vision here, I, I sometimes say I feel like I'm Cleanthes, although I'm not the scholar, but the second scholar, the first scholar, uh, Zeno, was the founder of Stoicism. But the second scholar was Cleanthes, and he was not known, he's never spoken of as being the, the brightest bulb. He's, he was a dogged fellow who, with enough study, managed to understand things. And he held the school together during a critical transitional period from Zeno to Chrysippus, who came next after him, who was the most productive Stoic intellectual in all history, uh, who wrote hundreds of books, most of which have, all of which have not survived, actually, except in fragments, but renowned as one of the great, you know, great philosophers of all time. Uh, So Cleanthes... I would say he was a, a, a boxer. He held down the fort. He put the foundation in place and so forth. And I kind of feel like, although I'm no boxer, you know, my role right now has been sort of transitional to provide the framework for this school to go, in the, you know, well into its second, third, fourth, fifth generation. Right now, the leadership of the school is what I call the second generation. Aristotle, as I said, went through the school. He graduated. All our our faculty have come through the school and the faculty have now taken over from the founder who has retired. So it's in that generation and we need to get to the third. And I just want to take a second here to, you've shared a few things with me as far as the, the new infrastructure of the school as it's grown over the last little bit. And it's, I've got to say that it's as somebody with a technical and IT background and a little bit of an educational background, I find what you have put into place to be very impressive. I mean, in no small way, a big effort 
on your part and probably everybody else's part involved, this really does feel like, for anybody who's wondering whether or not it does, feels like a quote-unquote real school. And that is not an easy thing to accomplish, getting curriculums in line, having the sort of back-end administration support, like when people apply, they get a reasonably quick response. There's a whole vetting process. Having those things in place are not easy. So you may be a Cleanthes, but I think you're <laughs> you're pretty good at playing the role of Cleanthes, maybe better than Cleanthes was. Well, I, I, I won't make any any such claims, but but um, if I'm half as sex, successful as Cleanthes was, Cleanthes was the school will be on on safe ground, and you know the the issue of the school, um, you know, as a school, really a school. People sometimes say, "Well, is it accredited? Is it an accredited college?" Well, no, it's not accredited because it doesn't have to be accredited. After all, nobody is applying to get financial aid or a loan for this school. It's completely personal enrichment is why people do it. I guess you could call it adult continuing education. But is it a college? I would say absolutely. It is dead serious from an academic and practice perspective. And it is uh, filled with people who have, are deeply studying the material. And it is certainly collegial in every in every respect. Except we don't have a sports team yet. We need a sports team. Uh, and we may start with wrestling, uh, of course. I like it. Um, because, you know, stoicism is not a dance. It's a wrestling match. Well, we are speaking with Mitch Leventhal, president of the College of Stoic Philosophers. And when we come back, we're going to speak briefly about the curriculum from a 10,000-foot view, what to expect if you're interested in the SES program in particular, and then a little bit about what you can expect if you're interested in the Marcus Aurelius program once you've gone through the SES program. So stay with us. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.
And we are back with Mitch Leventhal, president of the College of Stoic Philosophers. You mentioned in the first section the word topoi, which refers to the, let's say, and this is an analogy you've used or a metaphor you've used, the three legs of the stool. You've got the physics, you've got the ethics, and you've got the logic. The Stoic Essentials program is broken out into those three legs. Can you walk us through a little bit of that program, what someone who's taking it, what should they expect? Because it's easy to say, oh, you should expect physics and you should expect logic, but maybe that's, it's not exactly clear what all that means. So can you break it out a little bit and help people understand what they might be getting themselves into? So logic, physics, and ethics are the three topoi. Really think of topoi as topics, probably the origin of the word, although I haven't checked. They're the three essential sort of elements of the philosophy that you study as distinct fields, although they do interact, which becomes obvious as you study them, but is not always evident uh, from the outside. The way we develop uh, our introductory course and our advanced course, the Marcus Aurelius course, is around starting with logic, then physics, then ethics. Um, Most scholars believe that was the traditional order that these three were taught in ancient times, although there are a couple documented ancient philosophers who flipped it around a little bit. But logic, uh, the, the thinking being that it is sort of the fundamental mechanics of thought and reason that everyone should know how to reason and the various rules that they developed uh, and types of argumentation that they developed, they thought were essential to for a rational mind. So they're sort of like the toolkit, you know, that the, you, the, you carry around. So we spend a unit on that. And our courses, we have our own materials. We also use a textbook in this Stoic Essential Studies, a, a textbook called Stoicism by John Sellers, which is widely available. We've done it other ways in the past. That's what we're using right now as a supplemental text. Um, it's an excellent text and it's very accessible and it covers the, 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 the whole curriculum effectively. And then we have a unit on physics. And what is Stoic physics? Well, in its origin, it's the way they understood the material world uh, and the universe and how those material facts of reality, uh, how we, how they uh, condition us, how they relate to our own existence and all of that. And then the last piece is, is ethics, which is about behavior. And then there's a fourth, which is prosike, which really is, the, it's a Greek word for um, attention. And that's really putting it all together. It's a set of exercises. And we switch this up. There's so many things you can do in terms of prosake, but there also are some basic practices that most Stoics will say they do, if not habitually, periodically. And then there are other things that people develop or use. But attention relates to all of these processes happen in the course of your day. Uh, not just things you might do like journaling and so forth, but even down at the minute level, when you're faced with a an ethical decision or a decision point in general uh, in, involving interactions with other human beings, uh, are you paying proper attention to your impressions and so forth? Dissecting it uh, before acting effectively. That level of attention is what you want to get to, what you want to habituate yourself to, without becoming obsessive to the point where you can't make decisions, of course. Uh, so we spend a lot of time. That's really the practical aspect of Stoicism. That is where you're putting it together on a daily basis as you navigate through life. And so that's a critical piece. And without that, Stoicism is strictly a, an academic, hypothetical uh, philosophy. 
uh, and that is not what it's intended to be. Well, it's also like if you cram for an exam the night before and you manage to pass the test, prosake is the retention of what you've learned, right? Because you can learn everything you can know about Stoicism in order to, let's say, successfully get through a program at the College of Stoic Philosophers. But if you are not using prosake, the act of paying attention, the practice, rather, of paying attention. If you're not doing that, then you've got all this knowledge. It'll atrophy. And if you don't want it to atrophy, then you've got to pay attention to whether or not you're using it in every aspect of your life. Right. In a way, prosuke itself is the test, because the test is prosuke or not prosuke. What happens with not prosuke, right? <laughs> what happens with prosuke? It's pretty binary. Prosuke itself is the test. So you have to always try to stay on, you know, to the extent possible. We all fail. We all we all make mistakes. We err. That's that is absolutely natural. But prosuke, in a sense, is is the test. It's that mindfulness. I don't like the word mindfulness so much. That's a little more modern and and kind of pop culture. But it is, in fact, mindfulness. The difference between knowing the answer and actually putting that action into practice, putting that answer into practice. We've been talking with Mitch Leventhal of the College of Stoic Philosophers. I'm enrolled in the Stoic Essential Studies program. It has been an eye-opener, and I say that as someone who, starting that college, felt like, you know, he knew more than the average bear did. But it really is unreal how much you don't know. And I knew I didn't know plenty, but I didn't know how big plenty was. And I've learned since starting the program that plenty is plenty big. If you yourself are interested in attending this college, the first step, if you are over 18, I think is the rule, right, Mitch? If you're over 18, you can go right into SES. If you're under 18, you want to consider the prep course first. Is that right? That's correct. Then you can go to collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. Yes. And you can apply. You'll have to write a know thyself essay, which I think has a minimum of a thousand words or, you know, give or take something like that. And, you know, shoot your shot. If you're really interested in learning this stuff, what I've said to Mitch privately before is that this feels like the closest you can get to studying with the masters. And Mitch, of course, won't refer to himself as that. But if there is a modern stoa, if there is a modern painted porch, then it is the College of Stoic Philosophers. I'm learning an immense amount. And I would encourage you, if you're somebody who, you know, you get your information from Reddit or from this podcast or from various Facebook groups, you're probably getting good information. You might also be getting some bad information, but to have all of the good information put together into a coherent curriculum that can guide you through the learning process so that you can come out the other end really well-informed of Stoicism and in a position to practice that prosake, as Mitch and I were just talking about, this is the way to do it. Mitch, before we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to say? Well, since we sort of pointed him to the website, um, I might uh, tell people uh, that apart from obviously having complete uh, information about how to apply, the school does uh, publish its own little journal, which is largely composed of writings of the students themselves or faculty. So people like you, I like to say, it's very interesting to read. These are people who are who are living it and doing their best. We also have some interesting articles and, and things in something called the Sto Scholar's Permanent Collection and a Rare Book Collection, which are books which are long out of print uh, from around the world related to Stoicism. So I just invite people to consider it a resource and explore the website. 
Mitch, one last time, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. I've been watching the sunlight die in the background as we've been talking. So I will let you get to what I'm sure might be a very delicious dinner that someone has planned. And just thank you so much for being here. If anybody wanted to reach out to you in particular and ask any questions of the college, is there an email address or a way to do that that you prefer? Info at collegeofstoicphilosophers.org. That goes to one of our board members who monitors it. And I'm the president of the college. I mean, I generally will get whatever comes through that info address if it's addressed to me. So info ad is, is the best way to go. Okay, sounds good. Well, thank you again, Mitch, for being here. We really appreciate your time and look forward to talking to you in the future. And of course, graduating hopefully successfully from the SES program at the College of Stoic Philosophers. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Practical Stoicism. I see that you are a free listener. That's okay. But if you'd like to get rid of ads and support everything we do here at Practical Stoicism, which includes not just the seven episodes a week that you've grown accustomed to, but also lecture series, special events, mini documentaries, and all kinds of other things, you can go to stoicismpod.com forward slash members to do just that. Your support is appreciated. And thank you again for listening. Until next time, take care. Take care.